you'll take your Bible with me this morning and if you'll open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. And I continue in this series of messages entitled, Thanks Living. Being a thankful person shouldn't be something that's once a year or a week every year. It ought to be a way of life. And my encouragement out of this series is that we would become a daily thankful people for the multiplied things that God has done for us and for who God is in and of himself. I want to begin reading in verse 11 of Luke chapter 17. This particular story is found in no other gospel. It's only found in this gospel. Chapter 17, verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his, at his feet, giving him thanks. Hear those words? Giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, growing up, there were some rhetorical questions that I heard periodically that came from my parents, and sometimes from my siblings, that are questions that are very likely questions that you heard from parents and siblings. These aren't questions that necessarily need an answer. They answer themselves in, of ask, in the sense of asking the question alone. For instance, one of those questions that I heard on occasion was, were you born in a barn? Were you born in a barn? Now, that meant a couple of things at our house. That meant, number one, either I had left the door open or a window open, or that meant that my room was in a mess. Were you born in a barn? You probably heard that question at some point in the course of your life. There's another question that I heard that came from my sisters, my much older sisters. <laughs> Being the youngest of the family and the only boy, I was often persecuted uh, by, by my sisters. And my sisters sometimes would say, will you ever grow up? Will you ever grow up? Now, that was a carefully planned, relentless program of persecution on my life. I didn't deserve any of that. There was another one of these rhetorical questions that was asked. It really came in a couple of forms. Probably you've heard it as well. It's the question, have you forgotten something? Or I heard it this way sometimes, now, Davy, what do you say? What do you say? Both of those questions were indicators that you'd probably received something from somebody else, but you had forgotten to say thank you. Well, those were rhetorical questions that I heard growing up. When our kids were growing up in our house, there were two magic words that they had to learn to say. We just made sure that they learned them 
Do you know what those two magic words are? They're probably the same two magic words that were learned in your house as well. The first one was, please, and the other was, thank you. Those are the two magic words. Uh, you want to make the world go around? Learn to say please. Learn to say thank you. And you have to work at it with children, don't you? You know, ingratitude at its best, at its best, ingratitude demonstrates immaturity. We expect immaturity and ingratitude from young children. They have to be taught those things, the right things. Uh, when you have a baby, a young child in your family, they don't care about what you did for them yesterday. <laughs> they don't care about what you're going to do for them tomorrow. They want to know, what are you going to do for me right now? Those are the questions they want answered. And they don't always know how to ask those questions. Sometimes they don't even ask those questions. In, in the middle of the night, they just scream out. And they're expecting you to show up. But that's part of immaturity, isn't it? That's part of immaturity. Uh, when you grow up, you learn to use the magic words. You learn not to have to be questioned with these rhetorical kinds of questions because you, you learn to say thank you because you've matured in life. Obviously, that's at best ingratitude is the sign of immaturity. At worst, it's a sign of selfishness, self-centeredness, and sinfulness. Speaking of ingratitude, it reminds me of a little boy who wanted $100, and he had been praying and praying and praying for God to send him $100, but he never got the $100. So he sat down one day and decided to write out a little letter to God and ask God in that letter to give him $100, and he addressed it to God, comma, USA. <laughs> he got mailed, and the postal workers didn't know what to do with it, so they sent it to the president at the time. And the president got the letter, and he was amused when he saw it. He opened it up and saw it and was amused by it. And he said to his secretary, put $5 in that envelope, and you send that $5 back to that little boy. Well, the little boy was absolutely delighted when he received that $5 bill. And he sat down to write out another, another note, a thank you note to God. When the postal authorities received it, they forwarded it on to the president at the time. And the thank you note said this, Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you sent it through Washington, D.C., and those guys deducted $95 in taxes. <laughs> Some days when they talk about taxes, I don't feel real mature, right? You might not feel real mature either. This story that we read this morning teaches us some important lessons about thanks living. Uh, this story is only found here in the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to show us something about this maturity that comes through gratitude and gratitude that comes through maturity. You'll notice as you read through this story that the incident takes place at the border of southern Galilee and the northern border of Samaria, where these two regions meet together. And that explains why you have Jews and a Samaritan, at least one Samaritan, that are mixed together in this group of ten men. I mean, Samaritans and Jews, for the most part, didn't have anything to do with one another. But here they were afflicted with the same disease in this border area, and they're spending time together. Misery, if you will, loves what? Misery loves company. And they were spending time together, and that's why you find both these Jews and this at least one Samaritan. 
And from this story, there are four things that I want you to notice. And the first is this, a tragic condition. I want you to notice the tragic condition. Again, verse 11 and 12. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. When you see the word leprosy, lepers in the Bible, it's a general term in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it can refer to a number of different skin conditions that could cause you to be isolated for a period of time until they determined exactly what it was. But I want you to know that the skin condition that we're talking about on this occasion is what today we call Hansen's disease, what the medical world calls Hansen's disease. It's what we traditionally think of when we think of the word leprosy. So just to help you to get an understanding of this disease, I googled it uh, in the Center for Disease Control website came up, and this is what they have to say about Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, also known as leprosy, is an infection caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. And if you're a medical person and I didn't pronounce that right, forgive me. These bacteria grow very slowly, and it may take up to 20 years to develop signs of the infection. The disease can affect the nerves, skin, eyes, and the lining of the nose. The bacteria attack the nerves, which can become swollen under the skin. This can cause the affected areas to lose the ability to sense touch and pain, which can lead to injuries like cuts and burns and other kinds of infections. Usually the affected skin changes color and either becomes lighter or darker, often dry or flaky, with loss of feeling, or reddish due to inflammation of the skin. It goes on. If left untreated, the nerve damage can result in paralysis of hands and feet. In very advanced cases, the person may have multiple injuries due to lack of sensation, and eventually the body may reabsorb the affected digits over time, resulting in the apparent loss of toes and fingers. Corneal ulcers and blindness can also occur if facial nerves are affected. Other signs of advanced Hansen's disease may include loss of eyebrows and saddle nose deformity resulting from damage to the nasal septum. And so you get a little bit of a sense of what this disease can do. Now we know today that it's not nearly as contagious as it was thought originally, but it's nevertheless, if it's not treated properly, can bring deformity to your body, it can even bring death. It's interesting that a little later in this article, the CDC says that every year, about 150 people in the United States contract this illness. Now, you might think that's a big number, but wait for a moment. Every year in the world around, other than the United States, 250,000 people contract this illness. So while we don't see it very often, and it's not very familiar to us, it's not around us necessarily where we see it frequently, other parts of the world, it is very frequent, and it's something that a lot of people see. And it can cause deformity, it can even cause death. Alfred uh, Edersheim is an author, he's uh, passed in the 20th century, but um, he wrote one of those definitive books called The Life and Times of Jesus. And it's one of those books where he takes the culture of the day, uh, being a Jewish man who came to faith in Jesus Christ, he takes the culture of that first century 
of the period of the Bible, the gospel period, and, and he gives you insight into what it was like in first century society. Let me read you a little bit of what he says about leprosy and the leper himself. Wrapped in mourner's garb, the leper passed by. His cry, unclean, unclean, was to incite others to pray for him, but also to avoid him. No one was even to salute him. His bed was to be low, inclining towards the ground. If he even put his head into a place, it became unclean. No less a distance than four cubits, that's about six feet, must be kept from a leper. Or if the wind came from that direction, a hundred cubits, that's about 150 feet, were scarcely sufficient. He says, Rabbi Mir would not eat an egg purchased on a street where there was a leper. Another rabbi boasted that he always threw stones at them to keep them afar off while others hid themselves or ran away. And so you begin to get a little bit of a feeling of what these ten men have been experiencing in the course of their lives and the difficulties they, they had been facing, whether for months, probably for years, they had been going through it. And it wasn't just a matter of the disease itself. The disease itself caused you to be ceremonially unclean. That meant you couldn't participate not only in society in general, you couldn't participate in any aspect of the worship of Israel. Actually, there's two chapters in the Old Testament that are given to this whole matter of leprosy and how you detect it and what you do about it. Leviticus 13 and 14. Go read it sometime and see what it says about how you detect it and how you treat those who are found to have leprosy. In other words, the leprosy was deforming. It could be deadly. While it wasn't necessarily as contagious as they thought it was, nevertheless, it was something that and even today, 250,000 people around the world are able to get. And it would result in you being banished from society. You would be isolated from society. You couldn't participate in worship. You were considered to be unclean. And if anybody came in contact with you, you were unclean. As a matter of fact, the only uh, uncleanness that was worse than that of being touched by a leper was touching a dead body. Any of those kinds of things caused you to be unclean, which meant you had to go through a process before you were able to participate again in the worship of God. Now, here's the problem. When we talk about leprosy, it's so rare around us that it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like to have been one of these 10 men living with and dealing with this, this matter of leprosy. So I want to take you to something that's more present. In 2014, you may remember the name Dr. Brantley. You may remember the outbreak in West Africa of Ebola. And Dr. Brantley, serving as a medical missionary with Samaritan's Purse, uh, contracted the disease. And it was all over the news. Everybody was talking about it because they were going to fly Dr. Brantley and a nurse who also had it, going to fly them from West Africa and bring them back to the States. And everybody said, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do we want to bring Ebola back to the States? And if you can remember that period of time, you can remember on the news and around you that there probably was some hysteria about it. You know, I don't think we want to bring that back into the States. Well, in 2014, after the Ebola was cured in him, he became Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And he wrote an article in Time Magazine. It comes 
from 2014. And I, I'm going to do something. I always read to you some things, but I'm going to read a longer section because it's his words. And going inside what it was like to have Ebola can give you a, a picture of what it was like potentially for those who had leprosy all of those years ago. He writes, the morning I woke up with Ebola, I felt a little warm. My temperature was 100, higher than normal, but not too concerning. I decided to stay home from work that morning just to play it safe. I had spent the last seven weeks fighting the world's worst Ebola outbreak in Liberia, where I was working as a physician with Samaritan's Purse. I thought I just had a cold, but I was not naive enough to think I was immune to the possibility of Ebola. By noon, my temperature had increased to 101.4. I took a rapid malaria test. It was negative. Not a good sign. I called our team leader who sent physician colleagues to my home in full protective gear. After two more negative malaria tests, I knew I'd be in isolation for at least three more days. Often the blood test for Ebola will remain negative for the first three days of illness. So we had to wait a few days for an accurate result. In the meantime, I grew sicker. My fever hit 104.9. I felt nauseated, began having diarrhea. Eventually, the team started an IV in my arm and gave me fluids. We all hoped it could be dinghy fever. On the fourth day, the team leader came to my bedroom window with news. Kent, buddy, we have your test results. And I'm really sorry to tell you that it's positive for Ebola. I don't know what to think. I didn't know what to think. I just asked, so what's the plan? In the middle of October 2013, I had moved to Monrovia with my wife Amber and two children. We planned to serve as medical missionaries with Samaritan's Purse for two years. The first time I heard about the Ebola outbreak was at the end of March. But within a couple of months... I was one of only two doctors in Monrovia treating Ebola patients. On June 11th, our hospital received a call from the Ministry of Health. They were bringing two Ebola patients to our isolation unit. In the two hours it took for us to prepare everything, one of the patients died in the ambulance. Over the next month and a half, the number of patients grew exponentially. We were overwhelmed, he says. On July 20th, we opened a larger isolation unit and consolidated our smaller facility with the patients from another nearby hospital. That's the same day I dropped off Amber and the kids at the airport to return to Texas for a family wedding. I was supposed to meet them a week later, but just three days after their departure, I got sick. Since we had started treating patients with Ebola in Monrovia, we had only one one survivor. I had watched too many people die from this disease. Amber and I were both at the disadvantage of knowing how this illness ends. He continues. At some point, I was told about an experimental drug. It had worked on monkeys, but had never been tested in humans. I agreed to receive it, but, they, but then decided that Nancy Wrightbowl, that's the nurse, should get, get it first since she was sicker. I was not trying to be a hero, he said. I was making a rational decision as a doctor. Over the next couple of days, though, my condition worsened. My body began shaking 
My heart was racing. Nothing would bring down my temperature, and I had fluid in my lungs. I felt hot, nauseated, weak. Everything was a blur. The doctor decided to give me the drug, and within an hour, my body stabilized a bit. It was enough improvement for me to, safely, to be safely evacuated to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. During my own care, I often thought about the patients I had treated. Ebola is a humiliating disease that strips you of your dignity. You are removed from family and put into isolation where you cannot even see you cannot even see the faces of those caring for you due to the protective suits. You can only see their eyes. You have uncontrollable diarrhea and it's embarrassing. You have to rely on others to clean you up. That is why we tried our best to treat patients like our own family. Through our protective gear, we spoke to each patient, calling them by name and touching them. We wanted them to know they were valuable. We wanted them to know they were valuable, that they were loved, and that we were there to serve them. At Emory, I finally cried for the first time when I saw my family members through a window and spoke to them over the intercom. I was not sure I would ever see them again. When I finally recovered, the nurses excitedly helped me leave the isolation room, and I held my wife in my arms for the first time in a month. Even when I was facing death, I remained full of faith. I did not want to be faithful to God all the way up to serving in Liberia for 10 months, only to give up at the end because I was sick. He finishes by saying, Ebola has changed everything in West Africa. We cannot sit back and say, oh, those dear people. We must think outside the box and find ways to help. Now listen, this is what a leprous patient would have felt. People are fearful of isolation units because that is where you go to die. That is where you go to die. That's something we can get our minds around. And that's something of the way people felt in the first century when they had people in their community that were diagnosed with leprosy and they were removed from the community and they were kept in a virtual isolation unit away from everybody, cut off from everything in life. That's how these 10 men must have felt. That's how these 10 men must have felt. You can imagine being cut off from your family, unable to worship God, not able to go into the marketplace. The food that you eat is something that somebody graciously somewhere along the way has left somewhere for you to be able to even have food. It must have been a terrible, terrible life for them to have to live. It was a tragic, a tragic condition. But let's talk secondly about a touching compassion. A touching compassion. Notice, if you will, verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And they must have said it over and over and over again. But if you miss everything else, listen to what he says in verse 14. So when he, Jesus, when he, Jesus, saw them. 
Do you realize that most lepers lived in isolation and never saw anyone other than other lepers? They were kept at a distance from all society. They weren't allowed to be a part of anything that was going on in the community. Can you imagine what it was like for somebody to actually stop and see them? I mean, Alfred Edersheim says there's one, one of the priests who would take rocks and throw rocks at them to keep them as far away as possible. He didn't want anywhere near them. One of them wouldn't even eat an egg that was purchased from a street where a leper had been. And yet Jesus, when he heard these ten men, it says that he saw them. Can I just tell you that human nature had conspired with the Jewish law to make these people as invisible as they could possibly be made to society, to be cut off in this fashion. But before we get too self-righteous about it, I have to tell you that human nature is still doing that today. As a minister of the gospel who works around sick and dying people on a regular basis, I see a lot of people who are isolated and who are alone. And the family isn't there. And the friends don't come. And there's no people to show up other than those that are medical professionals and thank God for them. And they're there all by themselves or they're treated like a number rather than like a person. Most of the time... People feel that way because they're uncomfortable with illness and they're uncomfortable with death. They don't want to have to come face to face with it. They don't want to have to deal with it. And consequently, there's a whole group of people who are living with illness and who are dying with illness and they're isolated. Don't you think that what we say is our mission as a church to make disciples that live and love like Jesus? Don't you think that that should cause us to lift up our eyes and to take notice of the people that are around us and to stop being uncomfortable and afraid about some of these things and recognize that these people need our care? They need somebody to see them. They need to be more than just a number. They need to be recognized as being human beings made in the image of God. It's interesting to me that these lepers, these lepers felt comfortable enough with Jesus to get close to him. They didn't get right up next to him, but they got closer to him probably than they got to anybody else because they knew he was their last best hope. And they knew that Jesus was the kind of person apparently that had healed others. And so they came as close as they could and they blended their voices together like a choir. Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus didn't throw rocks at them. He didn't walk right on by them. Jesus stopped and he saw them. That alone would have been something that brought a measure of comfort to those 10 men who had lived in utter isolation for a large portion of their lives. And I like the way Luke words it here. You notice in verse 12, chapter 17, verse 12, then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10, what's the next word? 
men. Now, he'll go on to call them lepers, who were lepers. But he first identifies them not as lepers. He first identifies them as men. He acknowledges their humanity. Yes, they're sick. Yes, their disease can be something that can spread. Yes, it will cause deformity. And yes, it can bring death. But they are still humanity. And Jesus cared about them. You know, Jesus' compassion for hurting people is frequently emphasized in the Gospels. You don't need to turn to these passages. Just listen to me as I read them to you. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, hear the words, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Or think about Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 to 34. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped. I like that. We're too busy to even stop, aren't we? Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight. Or how about Luke chapter 7, verses 12 to 15? And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And you know what he does? He raises that boy from the dead. Or how about Mark chapter 6, verse 34? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus saw people. He didn't throw rocks at them. He didn't ignore them. Jesus saw these ten men when nobody else was paying any attention to them. I don't know if you like to read or not, but there's an excellent book by Philip Yancey called Where is God When It Hurts? I've had it for a number of years. I read it many years ago. It's not a new book. It's been reprinted, but it's not a new book. In the book, he's talking about and helping people to come to grips with why we go through pain and why there is suffering in the world. It's an excellent book. But in that book, he says this. The first step in helping a suffering person is to acknowledge that the pain is valid and worthy of a sympathetic response. A sick person is not a sick person, but rather a person of worth and value who happens to have some bodily parts that are not functioning well. Pretty good way to put it, isn't it? So those people that are sick and those people that are dying, that's humanity. Those are people made in the image of God. They have some body parts that aren't functioning properly. It may end up taking their lives out of this world and into eternity, but they still matter. You can see Jesus constantly working amongst these kinds of people, especially those especially those that were sick. Think about it. John chapter 4, verse 46 to 54, he passes through Cana. 
and encounters a nobleman whose son was at the point of death. And what does Jesus do? Jesus healed him. Or he passed through Capernaum, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, and encountered a leper. And what does he do? Jesus heals him. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, he passed through Galilee, encountered a deaf mute man who was possessed with demons. And what did he do? Jesus healed him and cast out the demon. In Mark chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, he passed near Capernaum and encountered a woman with an issue of blood. And what does he do? Jesus heals her. Now look, you don't have the power to heal. So if the sign on the hospital door says, gown up before you go in, suit up before you go in, don't be foolish. Suit up before you go in. But that person behind that door still bears the image of God. It's still humanity and still matters. And Jesus' ministry functioned amongst those kinds of people, people who were hurting and people who were broken and people who were sick and people who were dying and people who were isolated and everybody else pushed to the periphery of society. Jesus ministered to those very kinds of people. Jesus touched those that others considered outsiders. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you one more thing. There's some cultural tension in this passage. Not only is there this issue of the leprosy, but one of these men has a double problem. Not only is he leprous, he's a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They didn't pass time together. They didn't spend time together. They stayed apart. And here is a man, one of these ten at least. We assume that the other nine were Jews. We're not told that specifically, but we assume it. One of these men had not only the isolation of his leprosy, there was the matter of his own humanity being a part of a nation of people that the Jews despised. These ten men lived in a virtual no-man's land without love, without hope, without the simple joys and dignities of life. No one smiled at them or greeted them. They couldn't buy fresh fruit in the market, talk with people by the public fountain, laugh with their families. They couldn't go to work, operate a business, or haggle over prices with a shopkeeper. They didn't get invited to weddings, sing hymns in the synagogue, or celebrate Passover with their fellow Jews. Their leprosy had barred them from all of these things and even more that I could go on listing. And yet, Jesus saw them. A tragic condition, a touching compassion. That brings me to look thirdly at a transforming command. A transforming command. You'll notice it in verse 14. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was. As they went, they were cleansed. Now, get this. They're not healed immediately on the spot. Not instantaneously healed. These men are asked to act by faith. They're asked to act on a reality that is not yet actual. They're asked to act on a reality that is not yet actual. Think about that for a moment. 
Many of the other things that Jesus did for those that he healed were instantaneous. They were immediate, right in his presence. But this is a matter where he says, I want you to turn and I want you to go to the priest. Now, that was the appropriate thing to do. That's what the law required them to do. So he tells them to turn and to go find the priests. And it's as they are going. Did you notice that? As they went, it says, that the healing began to take place in their bodies. And surely when they heard Jesus say go, they they had to have believed him or they wouldn't have gone. And so I sort of imagined, what would it have been like when Jesus said to go and show yourself to the priest? Well, what would it have been like to have been with those 10 men on that street? Nobody else was with them out there on that pathway. Nobody else was with them except these 10 men. Misery loves company. They have to be together. You sort of wonder what it might have been like. So in my mind's eye, it sort of goes like this. Maybe it unfolded something like this as they were making this journey. A hand reappeared and tingled with life. Maybe a crutch tipped a filthy rag as it fell to the ground. The leg was back, healthy, whole, and complete. Suddenly their skin cleared, and the tiny hairs on their forearms turned from snow white to brown. One looked at the other, another looked at the rest, and the screaming started! Can you imagine? The smiles broke into cheering, and a sweet gladness settled over them. Wouldn't you have been glad? I mean, if you've been living in isolation, you hadn't been able to hug your family, your wife, your children. You hadn't been able to hug your parents. You hadn't been able to live with your friends, be amongst your friends. You hadn't been in worship. You hadn't done any of those things. You've been isolated. Don't you think if you looked down and you saw your legs were back, your arms are back, your hands are back, your, your skin is whole again, don't you think you'd be a little bit excited? Don't you? How is it we can get excited about a touchdown when we can't get excited about this? I mean, this is the ultimate touchdown. And the reason they had to go to the priest was because the priests were the local health inspectors, if you will, quote. They were the local health inspectors, and there was an elaborate process that they would go through that lasted eight days that involved various examinations and sacrifices and rituals that would allow them to come back into society. But think about, as they're on this road, suddenly, having obeyed the command of Jesus in faith, the power of Jesus has made them whole. A tragic condition, a touching compassion, a transforming command. Go. Show yourselves to the priest. Well, that brings me to my last point. And that's what we'll call a thankful convert. A thankful convert. These men have been yelling when Jesus passed by, Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on us. And now he's sent them on their way, and as they're on their way, suddenly the healing takes place. Maybe it was instantaneous. At some point, they crossed the line and suddenly they were healed. More likely, it was gradual. Little by little, this healing took place. And the result was that they were fully healed. They're filled with excitement. They're filled with thrill. You would think that all 10 of these men would run back to Jesus, the one who had told them to go. And if you think that, you'd think wrong. One man, a thankful convert, comes back. I want you to listen to his praise. It's found in verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. A loud voice 
glorified God. Preacher, we'd like you to talk a little lower. Be a little softer, preach. Hey, hey, when you've been touched by Jesus, there's no being quiet. There's no being quiet. You can't keep it to yourself. If you can stand up and do the thunderclap at the end of a touchdown, I mean, when you stop and think about what Jesus has done for you, I mean, you ought to be doing thunderclaps every day every, everywhere you go, right? Listen to his praise. Why is it we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Why do we sing as if it doesn't matter? Why do we go to a ball game and yell at the top of our lungs and get with the people of God and look like we're death warmed over? Listen to his praise. It's loud. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Look at his posture. Look at his posture. It's verse 16. And fell down on his face at his, notice where he is, his feet. He's not a distance away. He's right up next to Jesus. He's got Jesus by the feet. He's on his face before the Lord. It's the posture of worship. And if you can't bow your knee to Jesus physically, you bow your knee to Jesus in your heart. And then learn from his practice. You listen to his praise and look at his posture, but learn from his practice. What does he do? And fell down on his face at Jesus, or at his feet, Jesus' feet, giving him what? Giving him thanks. Giving him thanks. Giving him thanks. Loudly, where everybody can hear it. Slink in the church, but want our neighbors to know we're actually here. Bow our heads and hope nobody sees us praying the blessing before the food. Here was a man who knew what God had done for him, and he couldn't be quiet. He couldn't sing from just a whisper. He had yelled and asked Jesus for mercy, and he had been given that mercy, and he could only with a loud voice, expressing the deepest of emotion, respond to Jesus in saying repeatedly, it's what the tense means, he repeatedly was saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. He knew one of the magic words. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The other nine got all that they wanted from Jesus. They got healing from their bodies, but this man, this man, because he comes back to give thanks to the Lord, is going to receive something that, as far as we know, the other nine did not receive. And he didn't get it because he came back. He got it because of faith. Notice at verse 19, and he said to him, arise. This is Jesus speaking to this one Samaritan. That's a strike against him who had leprosy but is now healed. That had been a second strike against him. While the other nine are not to be found, this one man comes back to give glory to God and can't stop at the top of his lungs saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Jesus says to him, arise, go your way. Now listen carefully. Your faith, your faith has made you well. The Greek word that's translated well here is the same word that's translated for saved or salvation other places. 
His faith had brought to him physical healing as he was walking on that path back toward the priests. But now he's come back and he's at the feet of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is more than just one of the rabbis of the day. And he puts his faith in Jesus, and this man goes away saved. Everybody gets saved the same way. You get saved the same way. You come to the feet of Jesus, and you put your faith in the one who loves you. You trust him as your Savior. Dr. Warren Wiersbe says, by coming to Jesus, the man received something greater than physical healing. He was also saved from his sins. The Samaritan's nine friends were declared clean by the priest, but he, this Samaritan, was declared saved by the Son of God. And then I tell you one little further detail for you bibliophiles that like these details. Dr. Daryl Bach, who has a definitive commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says that throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke is constantly trying to get people to make a decision about Jesus, to make a decision about Jesus, make a decision about who Jesus is, make a decision about Jesus. And he says, this is the story that shows you one man who made the right decision. The other nine, these other nine, we assume being Jews, made the wrong decision about Jesus. This one man made the right decision about Jesus. But then in this story, there's one thing I want to give to you as we close. There's a tragic condition. There's a touching compassion. There's a transforming command. There's a thankful convert. But I want you to listen to the three questions, these penetrating questions. They're found in verses 17 to 18. The first one, Were there not ten cleansed? The second one, where are the nine? That's the indictment. And the third question, were there not any found who returned to give thanks to God except this foreigner? I want you to think for a moment what he's saying. Where are the nine? Why is it only one of these ten who have been been, uh, the recipients of the healing Why is it only one of these ten has returned to say, what do you say? What what do you say? What, What do you say? Why is it only one has come back to say, thank you? I don't know. Again, I'm just, just guessing. I'm imagining. Maybe one waited to see if the cure was real. There's always a skeptic in the crowd, you know. Another wanted to see if it would last. Still another thought, he'd talk to Jesus later. He's the ultimate procrastinator. Maybe one decided he never really had had leprosy. (laughs) Another said he would have gotten well anyway. Still another thought, you know, the glory doesn't belong to Jesus. It belongs to the priests. They're the ones that declare us clean. Maybe one said skeptically, all he did was tell us to go. Another might have thought, oh, any rabbi could have done that. Still another probably dismissed it saying, "Mm, I was already getting better anyway. I don't know. I I don't know. But I know by asking the question, where are the nine? Jesus is indicting the other ten. And by way of them, he's indicting every one of us who forgets the magic words to say thank you. What about you and me? How do we respond to the love and the mercy of Jesus? Do you understand, friends, 
what it is that Jesus has done for you? The sinless Son of God took on him the form of took on himself the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man. He lived amongst us. The sinless Son of God lived amongst us. He obeyed the law of God in its entirety. He crossed every T, he dotted every I. He did no wrong. When they took him and unjustly tried him in those six trials, they nailed him to a cross. And while Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth, your sin and my sin is laid on Jesus Christ. And the righteous justice of God against mankind's sin is exercised on Jesus Christ. And he takes what we rightfully deserve. They take him from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They think they've... They've silenced him. They'll not have to hear from him ever again. But on that third day, that Easter Sunday morning, the one who conquered sin and death arose. And now that one says to any one of us, if you'll come to me, if you'll come to me and put your faith in me, you can have eternal life. If you'll come to me, you can be a child of the living God. If you'll come to me and trust me, I'll forgive your sins. Listen, that's far worse. Our sin problem is far worse than any leprosy or any Ebola you can imagine. God's justice was satisfied at the cross. Eternal separation from God in the lake of fire is the natural consequence of rejecting Christ's gift of everlasting life. Don't blame God. He's done everything necessary to save you. The question is, will you come and put your faith in him? And if you've come and you have put your faith in him, how are you going to respond to this incredible love and mercy of Jesus Christ? How are you going to respond? You're going to have to be reminded, what do you say? What do you say? Will you have to be reminded? Matter of fact, I'll tell you this. I believe there's a whole lot more that God would do for us and wants to do for us, but we don't see it realized because of the ungratefulness of our hearts. Some of you know the author Max Lucado, a very prolific author, contemporary of our day. He tells the story of living as an American in Brazil. Don't put your Bibles up. He tells about living as an American in Brazil. One day he was walking down one of the streets, headed to the university where he was going to teach a class, and he felt a tug on his pants leg. And there was a little boy, about five or six years of age. He said he had dark, beady eyes and a little dirty face. The little boy looked up at this big American, and Max Decato is a very tall individual, looked up at this big American and said, Bread, sir! Bread, sir! Bread, sir. Lucado says that there are always little beggar boys in the streets of Brazil. Usually I turn away from them because there are so many you can't feed them all. But there was something, he says, so compelling about this little boy that I couldn't turn away. So taking his hand, I said, come with me. And I took him into a coffee shop. Lucado continues, I'll have a cup of coffee and give the boy a piece of pastry whatever he wants. I'll have a cup of coffee, give the boy whatever he wants. But the coffee 
was at the other end of the restaurant. So he turns and leaves the boy, goes down to the other end of the restaurant to get his coffee, expecting that once the boy's gotten his bread, he's going to run away. He's going to run back out into the streets and not going to see him again. But here he is in this restaurant with this little boy. He writes, I turned and looked. I turned and looked at him. Standing up, his eyes just about hit my belt buckle. In other words, this little boy has gone from this counter back to where the coffee is. Standing up, his eyes just about hit my belt buckle. Then slowly, his eyes came up until they met mine. The little boy, holding his pastry in one hand, looked up and said, Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Lucado said, I was so touched. Now hear this. Think about your heavenly father. I was so touched by the boy's thanks that I would have bought him the store. He says, I sat there another 30 minutes late for my class just thinking about the little beggar boy who came back and said thank you. I wonder how much more the Lord Jesus would love to do for us beyond just our eternal salvation if we just came back and we just said thank you and we kept saying it thank you 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 holding to his feet thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you, thank you.